This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm Dave Vanderveen, and um, this is a monologue today. Uh, we'll do a separate video for this one. I figure you didn't want to watch me uh, going through my my script as it is. I, I kind of re- I write these down. I think I have this this belief that ideas aren't really fully formed unless you can write them out and articulate them. And it doesn't mean it's true all the time, but I think most of the time our ideas are better shaped and formed and thought through when we actually take the time to write them down. So when I try and do these monologues, I I actually write them and I don't necessarily always read them verbatim, but um, but that's what we're going to do today. I thought we'd talk about perspective. You know, we've um, been going through this pandemic around the world since January, probably earlier in some parts of the world. Um, We started seeing it in January in our business in China. Went through Asia, Europe, U.S., and um, U.S. is number one. We've had the most COVID deaths <laughs> recorded so far. Uh, we'll see if we maintain that position over time. I think uh, I think the biggest challenge is you know the um, the data is difficult. It's uh, not very well correlated. It's um, this is a new pandemic. It's something that we're learning from as we go. Experts have been all over the place, and I think it's hard to be right. Most of us will be wrong at some point. So I thought I'd talk a little bit, a little bit about um, where we are with that, and um, you know, there's a lot of people protesting because they want to have their rights, and I can appreciate that, particularly in America. Uh, but it seems like a lot of people are also forgetting that there are corresponding obligations and responsibilities to having rights. There's a social fabric we have to maintain in order to have liberty and not just be ruled by you know despots by in a totalitarian or authoritarian government. So I thought I started with I thought um, maybe a little perspective on some of the things our grandparents and great grandparents went through, and I try and pull it into the future. And I'm going to uh, bring a couple voices into the conversation that I really appreciate and love um, as we go through this today. So uh, we're calling this one perspective. It's all about helping us think differently, break through barriers in our life, see the world a little bit maybe in a little bit bigger way than we would have otherwise, and. Um, And so here we go. A friend of mine reposted a meme on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, and it really struck me deeply. This is what it said. This is the meme. Imagine if you were born in 1900. On your 14th birthday, World War I starts and ends on your 18th birthday. 22 million people perish in that war. Later in the year, a Spanish flu, it's an epidemic, hits the planet, runs until your 20th birthday. 50 million people die in in those two years. Yes, 50. On your 29th birthday, the Great Depression begins. Lucky you. Unemployment hits 25%. The world GDP drops, you know, the, the gross domestic product of the world drops 27%. That runs until you're 33. The country nearly collapses along with the world economy. When you turn 39, World War II starts. You aren't even over the hill yet. And don't try and catch your breath. On your 41st birthday, the United States is pulled is fully pulled into World War II. Between your 39th and 45th birthday, 75 million people perish in the war, World War II. At 50, the Korean War starts. 5 million perish. At 55, the Vietnam War begins and doesn't end for 20 years. 4 million people perish in that conflict. On your 62nd birthday, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tipping point in the Cold War. Life on our planet, as we know it, should have ended. Great leaders prevented that from happening. When you turn 75, the Vietnam War finally ends. Think of everyone on the planet born in 1900. How did they survive all that? When you were a kid in 1985, I was a kid in 1985, and didn't think your 85-year-old grandparent understood how hard school was and how mean that kid in your class was. Yet they survived through everything listed above. 
Think about that. Perspective in his amazing art, refined as time goes on and enlightening like you wouldn't believe. Let's try and keep things in perspective. I love that post. I thought it was um, a fantastic display of perspective. And, and, you know, and it's hard because none of us were alive in 1900. It's hard to imagine what life was like and how much this changed. But when you think about what they went through, not just the technological changes, but the wars and the droughts and, and all kinds of things. I mean, you know, the way that the, the way that, that, that the physical quality of life has transformed is remarkable. For starters, there was a fundamental difference in both the fragility of life, the expectations that, that people likely had for how long they were going to be on this planet and who would make it, as well as the scale of death that could occur. It was, it was unparalleled. The average life expectancy in 1900 was a little over 46 years old for a man and a little over 48 years old for a woman. Childbirth, infant mortality, the lack of antibiotics and health care, things we consider normal today, mass, mass uh, didn't exist, right? Um, the, the things we take for granted, the fact that we have antibiotics, that we have good health care globally, you know, more or less globally, um, we have vaccines, we've almost eradicated things like measles and polio, uh, you know, the, the inroads we're making against malaria, one of the biggest killers, or cholera. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. But people used to die from these things, mass starvation, not having access to clean water, cholera epidemics, malaria epidemics, smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, etc. Death was a very normal and expected part of life in 1900. Time has changed. My brother died from leukemia when he was 26 and I was 24. You know, my father's a doctor. He's retired now. My mother was a nurse. It was common to hear about medical cases around our house. I remember going with my dad on a house call one weekend when I was in grade school. We went to visit a man, a smoker, who had had throat cancer. My dad was a head and neck specialist, head and neck surgeon. He had had a tracheotomy. Uh, probably had, I don't know the exact procedure that he had gone through, but I think it was, you know, sometimes you get nodes on your, on your vocal cords, cancer in your, in your throat, and they have to take out your, your, your vocal cords. Um, probably saying it wrong. My brother-in-law, Joe, who is an ENT as well, or my father could correct me here. But anyways, he was basically smoking through an open hole in his throat. And then there was a little button you could push to speak through it. Um, when we went to, the, to visit him at his mobile home, my dad would do house calls and he had to you know, clean the trach and, and check it out, make sure it was okay. And when we got in the car to leave, the man was standing at the screen door and he was kind of you know, waving goodbye to us. Because my father saw a lot of throat cancer and other related problems from smoking that affect the sinuses, ears, and, and mouth, he really hated smoking. Um, when we were leaving, he said to me, he'll be dead in six months. I'll never forget that. But that's sort of the reality that we had around our house. Very clinical, matter-of-fact comments about, about the choices people made. But I just remember as a grade schooler having, having your dad say about someone who's standing there alive, he'll be dead in six months. And just sort of say it matter-of-factly. It's not my, my dad didn't have empathy or, or didn't have emotion or didn't care. I think that was just part of He was in his trade. He was doing his work. And he was like just making a statement about the reality of smoking and what it could do to you. You know, um, my dad used to comment <laughs> on the number of times obese people would go to a brunch buffet when we were on vacation. That's the fifth time. Or how many trips to the dessert bar does that person need? It wasn't ever mean-spirited. Like he wasn't saying it, you know, he never put like a judgmental comment on it. It was just sort of, I think it was just sort of an observation. Like he was observing somebody that shouldn't be making that choice, making the choices that are put him in the position that they're in probably. 
And then he would comment on it. I just remember as a kid, it was like, why are we talking about this? Why does that person matter? Um, And so in in the light of that kind of that clinical, um, almost, you know, wasn't even judgmental. It was just kind of stating what the observations as we were going through. When my brother died at home in our living room, we faced a very different reality. It wasn't a clinical fact. It was an emotional reality. We didn't have great tools to process. One of the things my dad said to us was that in 19, you know, this happened in 1993, we weren't used to having young people die from disease. We sort of thought that modern medicine can cure everything. We, you know, it wasn't like the 1900s where you had massive amounts of infant mortality, where a woman could just as easily die in childbirth as she could have a healthy baby. Um, and so I think we had, uh, we had lost connection to how close, close death lives to each of us, particularly in a post-World War II America that had created all sorts of levels of, of comfort and convenience. I also remember in 1974, it was August 1974, we were at my grandmother's house in Wisconsin watching television. And my dad said to my brother, sister, and me, he said, watch the television. Remember this. It became my first politically televised memory. The president of the United States, Richard Nixon, resigned. It was our first memory. <laughs> the Vietnam War ended the next year. We were living in D.C. My dad was at Andrews Air Force Base in the, in the Air Force Medical Corps. Um, and And you know, we were able to finally get out of the military, move back to where my father came from, to West Michigan. And, um, you know, he was starting a practice. He was able to get a loan. He bought a house on the lake and there was woods. Summer wasn't unbearably hot like it is on the East Coast and especially in Baltimore and D.C. And most of the kids, you know, all of a sudden were the same color as me and came from similar backgrounds. Life became a lot easier, I remember, when I was in first grade, because I wasn't one of the few white kids. I wasn't, um, you know, (laughs) everybody kind of knew that went to the same church, had the same beliefs, had the same foundations. It just just made it easy. And as a generation, and I was in Generation X, still am in Generation X, those of us born between 1965 and 1985, we didn't have a lot to fight for. You know, we might have been punks or skaters or into new wave music, but it was all kind of just a veneer. We were, we were called slackers and had a lot, a lot of kind of similar names applied to us um, because we hadn't been in a war, hadn't fought in a countercultural revolution at home like the boomers, hadn't really been through a pandemic. We had the benefit of vaccines. I'll mostly leave that statement alone. <laughs> but my brother-in-law, Dr. Joe Vandermeer, recently said about the anti-vax, anti-science conspiracy theorists, it's hard for some people to believe in an epidemic if they haven't seen one. I'd add that it's a lot easier for people to blame their doctor or modern medicine for a child's problems than to consider their age, DNA, or other elements that might be the root cause. In the same way, I remember being on the, on the practice soccer field at Wheaton College in the fall of 1987 when I learned that the stock market crashed and started to hear upperclassmen talk about what that might mean for their job prospects. In 1991, I remember, I remember what it meant for me as I started to look for work and thought about maybe going to law school or joining the Foreign Service because finding meaningful work post-graduation wasn't going to be easy in a recession. I ended up borrowing some money from my dad for an airline ticket to Japan and went to work there teaching English, also editing for a French marketing company. I didn't know any Japanese, hadn't even had sushi before, but I had heard that there was, a, there was good paying work for college graduates, so I went. I figured it out, scared to death in many ways. I've talked about it in some early episodes, but decided that I'd make it work. And I think that's probably how people born in 1900 did it too. 
They put one foot in front of the other and made it work. Which reminded me of another meme I saw today on Instagram. The best way to find out if it will work is to do it. Which reminded me of something that my grandmother, who was born in 1912, told me about her own father, my great-grandfather, Tony Hoekstra, who was a Dutch Frisian immigrant with a small printing business living in West Michigan. He had a family to feed. When the Great Depression hit and businesses were failing, he moved his printing press into the basement of their house. My grandmother asked him later how he got through it, and he said, every day I'd get up and be open for business, and I'd wonder if that day was the last day I'd be a printer. But every day, another customer came in, and I stayed in business. In fact, I I used Hookstra Printing, the printing company that my great-grandfather set up, um, when I was working in West Michigan, I was, I was the director of public affairs at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids in the early 1990s. He had stuck, and his sons and grandchildren and great-grandchildren stuck with that business, not from a grand strategy, but because they showed up and made it work every day. This pandemic is sort of a strange mix of health crisis, economic recession, and also a major shift in how we live and work. It's been wildly interesting to see how people respond and react to it. Let's start out, hopefully, by agreeing that the information and facts have been been difficult to follow. The data has not been flawless. The news outlets today are varied in their reliability and intentions. There have been a variety of responses that... uh, Oops, sorry. (laughs) I'm actually... I'm going to just turn off the... uh, I'm going to turn off my my phone real quick. Sorry, it's been... It's been been bleeping here while I'm trying to record this. Um, so let, let me go back here. Let's just start out by hopefully agreeing that the information and facts have been difficult to follow. The data has not been flawless. The news outlets today are varied in their reliability and intentions. And I mean that there's, there's some news outlets that are just ridiculous. There's some that are trying to be objective, but I think everyone's got their, their bias on, on alert. There've been a variety of responses as it has spread from Asia, Europe to Africa and India, and then finally to the Americas. And sorry, by the way, I'm lumping my friends in various hemispheres into broad swaths of geography. And I just say that it's some have been more effective than others at, um, at communicating what's happening, but for complex sets of reasons. We've also had confusing guidelines that have been applied in ways that don't always make sense. Why can I go into a large grocery store or big box store, but then I was banned from going surfing in the ocean or playing tennis or hiking on official trails? How do surgical masks and gloves actually work to protect us from others? I mean, I'm not saying that they don't. Uh, I am saying that, if, for example, if someone's coughing or sneezing, yes, very helpful. But, but in general, you know, if you're wearing gloves and you're not changing them all the time or you're touching your mask, it's not actually protecting you. Um, and by the way, for the record, just visit the Johns Hopkins website or WebMD for answers to all these questions about how masks and gloves work um, and, and, and why it's important that we use them from time to time. Some of my friends who never follow rules have doubled down on COVID-19 um, at the stay-at-home orders and quarantine, while others, some with medical, degree, some with medical degrees, uh, one of my friends who's a medical director, believes it's a liberal or global government conspiracy. I don't really want to argue about the realities of COVID-19 right now. First, because some of the facts are unreliable, but also because I don't think it really helps anyone. What I do think is useful right now is maybe a little more like my great-grandfather and his printing press. Um, I'm trying to simply show up each morning, be present, and maneuver as best I can, given the realities that I can impact. 
With my business, we've been dealing with COVID-19 since last January in mainland China. I was planning to visit Hong Kong and Shanghai in February as part of my trip that included Tokyo and had to refocus my work in Japan instead. Our company, uh, New Age, donated thousands of bottles of Tahitian noni juice, which can help a person dramatically boost their immunity, to frontline healthcare workers in China, over 8,000 bottles, uh, one-liter bottles to front, frontline healthcare workers in China. We've donated to USA food pantries and medical equipment where we could find it. We did this when we were when we really couldn't afford it. We did it because we believe that living generously and helping where we can outweighs pinching every penny, even when times are hard. We reorganized our work as each market was hit, restructured the business, and reoriented our messaging around immunity. We helped transition our business partners to virtual meetings and social media tools, and through what's felt like constant pivoting, have been able to deliver growth. It's been hard for everyone, but the combination of continuing to show up to put out more effort than normal the best we can, of facing the hard realities and believing in the end of the story seems to be working right now. And that's really pretty much all I know. A friend asked me what I thought about the pandemic and what I had seen and and what did I think was real or not real, etc. I said, you know, first, it's it's hard to totally get our arms around what's happening. I mean, the virus, I believe, is real, and it's been killing a lot of people. I mean, we've killed over 100,000 people just in the first, you know, 90 days of this pandemic in the United States. It's a lot more than the normal flu, and much more aggressively. Sarah and I are home now. Our youngest son, Willem, has been living through the pandemic in Paris, and our older son, Skylar, has been living in Los Angeles, dealing with it while in graduate school. We've been careful in terms of hygiene, how we interact with people, and we actually got, Sarah and I got tested. We did a blood draw that went to Quest Labs. We both tested negative, um, both for the active virus IgM and the post-virus IgG antibodies. I was actually writing this while I was uh, on my second domestic trip in May that includes air travel. I do believe that flying Delta Airlines, by the way, is infinitely safer than going to the grocery store. They have surgical air filters. Masks are mandatory on the plane, which I was very happy for because a guy sitting behind me was coughing the whole way from Atlanta to Orange uh, to Los Angeles. Um, I was happy that he had something covering his mouth with or without COVID-19. Um, they're spacing out the seating and they've got increased sanitation. I am traveling again because I need to be meeting face to face on some critical deals. Our company still has a travel ban for most staff, but it's my choice to travel now. When I answered the question, I said, I'm trying to understand and respect where people are with the pandemic. I'm trying to practice a little empathy about what other people are going through rather than trying to be right and rip the social fabric of our country apart. For example, I have a mask with me in public and I wear it in stores when required, not because I'm sick, sneezing or coughing, but out of respect for people who are scared to death to be around other people in community. When I meet with people, I ask what their comfort level is. Do they prefer masks or not masks? Do they tap elbows, shake hands, hug? I'm not shaking hands with everyone or hugging everyone because I'm not comfortable with that. By the way, I'd wear a condom too if I was still single and sexually active. But I'm curious about what's going on in other people's heads. How are they dealing with it? See, I think we actually live in community. Regardless of where the world is, uh, you know, of where in the world that is, I, th- I think we all live in community with other people. There are different communities that have different social fabrics that make things work. And it's really important to understand the social fabric that you live in, to understand not only your rights, what am I entitled to do, but what are my obligations to support other people trying to live in this community? Um, 
I don't believe that laws fell from heaven onto our laps. I believe that laws are a response and reaction to the culture that they come from. And that's why I think the social fabric is so important. By the way, if you want to read more about the origins of this concept of why social fabric is required to support liberty, um, there, is, there is a great French aristocrat who wrote um, a book called Freedom in America. I believe it's called Freedom in America. I don't, even have, I don't have it pulled up right now. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, it was when in the 1800s, um, this, this aristocrat, and I'm, geez, I'm having like a mind block right now, um, was, was riding around America um, and was, was trying to put his thumb on why America was, was succeeding at freedom when uh, de Tocqueville, Alexander de Tocqueville wrote that. But he was, he was riding around, you know, he was going around America in the 1800s trying to understand how America had had one revolution and been able to maintain liberty, where France had had revolution after revolution after revolution after revolution. They were basically prosecuting a civil war trying to figure out liberty. What de Tocqueville said is there is this fabric that supports the freedom in America that is unique and special and different. And if we haven't learned that through 20 years in the desert trying to instill liberty in Iraq and Afghanistan and not getting there, I don't know what else is going to teach us. So one thing that I think is certain that, that, that I think that communities hopefully do progress, not always and all the time, but over time, I think, I think they move up into the right net. How we organize ourselves politically, how we manage power progresses with as, as, our, as our social fabric progresses. I believe that each community needs to wrestle with the best way to organize themselves socially and then keep wrestling with the best way to organize themselves politically. Hopefully, people can do that in ways that are as nonviolent as possible. Usually having a common sense of ethics, morality, clearly defined boundaries, what's mine and what's yours, and having well-understood roles and responsibilities makes it easier to shape a society into a high-functioning group of people who can figure out how to work, play, worship, live, and love together. One thing that's certain for any community, for any community to work there must be mutual respect at the core. To have respect, I think we have to want to understand the other. We have to be capable of empathy. We probably need to believe that the foundational principle of this universe is a generous love and that all of us are made from that same stardust. Regardless of what you worship or how you think it was shaped, by a god or by chance, if you don't believe that we as humans have a unique capability to share love generously, to add value to others without calculating a return, to offer grace to others when they offend, then I really don't understand how or why you choose to get up in the morning, particularly when the thin veneer of civilization starts to crack and to put one foot in front of the other. Aaron James was on this podcast a few episodes ago. He's a remarkable philosopher who has written about assholes, which is why some people choose to take advantage of others whenever possible and always put themselves first. You know, the people that always cut in line, the people that think that they deserve to be at the front every time. He's also written about French, French existentialism, particularly Sartre, and, and how we each have the opportunity when faced with the meaninglessness of life, the absurdity of the universe, to be attuned with the moment and to apply ourselves in ways that both dances with the movement of energy in the universe and applies our own signature that adds beauty and grace to the world, even if it's fleeting and even if it's just for that moment. Because that moment is all that we have. Camus is one of my favorite French essayists and kind of existentialist philosophers. He says, you know, in the depth of winter, 
I finally learned that within me there lay an invincible summer. He talks about, you know, our role as humans is to revolt, to rebel against this absurdity in the universe and to force meaning into it in the way that we live our lives in the moment right now, because every moment is a judgment. He says, don't wait for the end times for a judgment day. Judgment happens every moment right now. Think about that for a minute. Albert Camus, post-World War II, having lived through the horrors of that war, Nazi Germany, you know, taking over France, all of the atrocities and the genocide and the meaninglessness, so that despite our experience pointing to a universe that isn't generous, that doesn't seem to care about us, that doesn't always exhibit love, that appears absurd and without meaning, we have the choice to, fos- to forsake ourselves, even forsake the search for some deeper meaning behind it all, and just choose to act to put meaning, to put love, to put grace, to put empathy back into the universe, regardless of it all. Despite all that, despite World War II, the Great Depression, uh, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Korean War, the Vietnam Wars, abuse at home, the way that family and people we work with didn't always treat us the way we deserved. Despite all of that, we can still choose how we respond to it. We can make that choice to give love back to put love out there, not because the results will necessarily be better or a crazy neighbor, husband, wife, or child will all of a sudden behave better, but because it's what we can control. We can choose to share love regardless. When we choose to share love, it changes us. If I think about when I'm angry with someone or jealous or harbor resentment, it never really hurts them. Even if it does, it never hurts them as much as it hurts me to hold that inside myself. Letting it go is hard. It's letting go of a sense of justice, of our demands, of our claims on them, whether they even know it or not. But that claim is bullshit. It's not real. It doesn't pay dividends. It only costs. The hardest and most expensive love is grace. It's giving love in the face of abuse, of fear, of pain, and of justice that's owed. Do we have the courage to let go of being right? Do we have the courage to let go of a sense of justice? Can we share love and grace and empathy instead? Grace is also probably the most powerful love of all. It's the kind that transforms. It may not transform the person you think of as the transgressor, and it may not put the scales of justice back right. It probably won't, but it will transform the person who gives it. And that is my choice, and that is your choice, and that is our choice in how we live. Perhaps trying to give it when you can, when you feel that sense of injustice well up inside of you, is one of the most powerful things you can do. It's one of the greatest gifts you can offer. Let me know how it works for you. I also said that I think it's really important for us all to be aware of our biases. As an example, I want this pandemic to not be real. I want it to be like the common flu. I'd like to be callous to older people in nursing homes or the obese or smokers or someone I don't know or love or care about who's dying from it. I wish I could do that because, you know, hey, they're just a cost on society, right? We need those markets to be really humming along and we'll, we'll trade every life we can uh, in order to, to get a return and, and a dividend and, and, and growth, right? Isn't that who we are in America? Is it? You know, I don't really want to be callous because I don't think that's who we are. 
I think that's, that's kind of a dumb, easy answer to a very complex and difficult question. You know, and I don't think that's what make, makes America great. I think America is great because we've taken in the sick, the tired, and the huddled masses. And I think our Statue of Liberty actually stands for something. I think we want the immigrants here. We've, we've taken the misfits, the people who believed in weird religions. That's how we started. Or didn't think a king on another continent had the right to tax colonies here. We even figured out that slavery was wrong. And a hundred years later, we started passing some civil rights laws, despite ourselves, despite it not being easy, despite many people who weren't African-American being unable to see prejudice. I love it when people chime in on social media and they're like, you know, and it's like a white guy living in suburban Ohio. <laughs> He's like, well, no, you're, you're not getting it. You know, there is no, there is no bias against African-Americans. And I'm like, why would anyone listen to anything you have to say on this topic? You don't live in that community. You don't see it. You know, of course you don't see it. It's only surprising when you do start to see it, when you do start to believe that maybe black lives matter too, you know? When I saw a video uh, on YouTube recently of, of, it was on YouTube of two urgent care doctors sharing their COVID testing data, which by the way, was a very limited pool of tests from a very limited geographic region. I think it was 5,000 tests from, you know, uh, Northern California. And they gave their armchair review of, of their data selection. You know, they weren't experts in the field and they did want to reopen their private practice. When they, when they posted their analysis and I liked it, I posted it because I liked what they said. I wanted it to be true. A couple of days later, the video was removed from YouTube and real experts took the time, time away from much more important work on the actual COVID-19 virus to educate people who would listen and read why these urgent care doctors were inaccurate. It wasn't what I wanted to hear, but it was better information. I listened. I, I read it. I listened. I paid attention and I changed my opinion because we can do that. We're people, we're humans, we have the ability. And, um, and so I posted an update and apologized for my bias. And, you know, and I apologized for any way it may, may have misled people on social media. The first step for me was to be aware of my own bias, that I wanted uh, this information to be true, that I was looking for that information, and, and that it was shaping my search for news, data, and information that made my bias seem more true, so I could be right, so I could change my life and live it the way I wanted to, rather than actually observe what's happening in the world. The second step was being open to being wrong. You know, the best part about having developed dozens of flavors for over 60 countries during the last 20 years for uh, the energy drink company that I helped found, Excess, is realizing that it doesn't really matter what you like. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what I want to be true or what I, what I think is right. What matters is what the market likes and what they get excited about. That process creates a very simple sense of empathy, flavor empathy in this case, that connects to culture and people and where they're from and why they like it. But it forced me to be open to learning that, that, that what the other person wants and desires and why is much more important than me trying to tell everyone what I love and what I want. I mean, it's literally, it's like moving past adolescence. Like it's not just about you and your navel and your rights and, you know, what you think you deserve. That's literally what an asshole is. It's learning to listen to other people, to be empathetic, to try and understand where they're coming from and build common ground. That's actually how we build a country again, how we build a social fabric and how we, how we learn to live better. 
I'd like to wrap this up today reading a segment of a speech that David Foster Wallace, one of the most remarkable and thoughtful authors of the 21st century, gave at Kenyon College in 2005. He reveals that one of the most important things we can do if we want to practice compassion and empathy and be aware is to choose how we think about our world, how we unpack our own biases. So this is a this is a speech that David Foster Wallace gave at Kenyon College. My older son went to Kenyon. He was not there when David Foster Wallace read this speech. And the title of this speech, you can find it on YouTube. You can find there's a, actually a cartoon of it now. You can see that David Foster Wallace reading it. Um, and you can find it online, but I have a, I've bought a, probably a dozen of these published books called This is Water uh, by David Foster Wallace it, because it's just one of the best little books I've ever read and I've given away to dozens of people. And I'm going to read just one segment from it. I won't read the whole thing, but take some time and pick this book up or watch it online. It's one of the most powerful speeches about how we can build empathy and compassion and and lifelong learning into our lives in a way that can profoundly change us. This is what he says. He said, the thing is that there are obviously different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way. It's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so traumatic that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive, or that the Hummer that just cut me off is maybe being driven by a father whose little child is hurt or sick in the same seat next to him, and he's trying to rush to the hospital, and he's in a way bigger, more legitimate hurry than I am. It is actually I who am in his way. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket checkout line is probably just as and as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some other of these people actually have much harder, more tedious, or painful lives than I do overall, and so on. He's talking about how you can make choices, about how you approach what you observe in the world. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice or I'm saying you are supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it because it's hard. It takes will and mental effort. And if you're like me, some days you won't be able to do it or else you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve the nightmarish red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends on what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably will not consider possibilities that aren't pointless and annoying. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know that you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell-type situation as not only meaningful but sacred, on fire with the same force that lit the stars. Compassion, love, the subsurface of unity of all things. Not that... Not that, not that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try and see it. This, I submit, 
is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship because there's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick of keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. You will, you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power, and, and it just hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our teeny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being taught how to think. See, David Foster Wallace was talking for in my opinion, one of the great, one of the greatest liberal arts schools in America, Kenyon College, a school where kids' families spend way too much money to learn how to think. And I hope that as we're going through this difficult time, whether you like the idea of wearing masks or you don't, I don't care. Whether you think Black Lives Matter or you not or you don't, I actually care a lot about that. I've been deleting people that refuse to get that. But I hope that you will choose to be fully aware of the world that you live in and the people around you and the social fabric that is required for us to have freedom and to live in community. And I hope that you will choose, maybe not all the time, but as often as you can, real, true freedom 
to share empathy, love, trust, and grace with your neighbor. Because I think that is what makes us truly human. And that would be exceptionally kick-aspirational. Thank you very much. You know, Kick Aspirational, this podcast is not a spectator sport. Love to hear your thoughts, your comments, your opinions, and your engagement. Um, I'm not tolerating a lot, of, a lot of racism right now, so if you, if you just don't like uh, people with different skin color and you can't have any empathy for somebody that is seeing the world very differently than you, I'm not really interested in that conversation right now. But I'd love to hear ways that you woke up, that you discovered some empathy inside you you didn't know you needed, and it maybe made a change in how you see the world. Have a great week and make the choices that are going to make you a better person.